Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to do in this audio 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 through 17. Our context is this, in the first nine verses of the letter, Paul, after greeting the Corinthians, well, he basically gives them a greeting in those nine verses. And in those nine verses, the interesting thing is he calls them saints, which is ironic somewhat because the Corinthian church is full of problems, unsaintly things. Well, the first unsaintly thing is they were full of divisions, rivalries, schisms, factions. And so he's, that's what we're going to deal with in these eight verses, 10 through 17. We're going to talk about the factions at Corinth and how Paul deplored those factions. We start with verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Now notice, first of all, Paul calls them brothers. He's getting ready to chastise them in this letter, but he's, they're still brothers. There's nothing wrong with chastising brothers as long as you let them know that they're still your brothers. He's appealing to unity here because, because Christians could be as close as blood brothers in a family. Now, of course, in a family, brothers do fight, but they're not supposed to. So the very title here, the very name brothers, is an argument for love. He's being very tender with them, as John Gill points out. And I point out that, yeah, he's being very tender with them before he blasts them later on in the letter. Now, he only mentions brothers, but of course he means the sisters too, of course. The NIV Study Bible points that out. Now, here's some interesting word study here about the word brothers. The Greek word is adelphoi, and it means brothers and sisters because you can look in all kind of context in, in secular literature, Greek literature, and the scriptures themselves. And when a group of Christians were being addressed... Paul, or the, the, the speaker, would say brothers when there were women present. So it's obviously talking about brothers and sisters. The classic case of that is in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul is talking about the brothers and the sisters there to do this, there to do that, when they prophesy, when they, you know, and, and he's obviously talking about sisters because he mentions the sisters in the middle of the context. When he says women should not, in my opinion, he, he's be silent, which I mean, I think he means to be silent in the women are to be silent when they are judging prophecies. They're not supposed to judge the men in prophecies, but whatever, that's a controversial verse, but whatever it means, it's referring to sisters, and all through that passage, the word that used is brothers, Adelphoi. Now, the NIV Study Bible translates it, the new version of the NIV, the 2011 version, translates it as brothers and sisters. The Net Bible, that's at Dallas Seminary, I think, on the Internet, says brothers and sisters. Now, and that's not really controversial, I don't think, However, some people who are worried about feminism, and that would include yours truly, seeping its way into the church might object to say, wait a minute now, you're, you're, in, in, you're trying to make it gender neutral. You're trying to be inclusive, just like all the feminists do, like all the PC people do. Well, no, that, that's not going to fly. Let me read you from a blog article by a Mr. R. Daly. His blog is called Biblical Language Research. He says this, The modern reader may be misled into thinking only males are being addressed in certain contexts, when in reality they are not. So modern English versions, in an effort to be accurate, especially when a congregation is addressed, when a congregation is addressed, translate Adelphoi with the phrase brothers and sisters. That would include the 2011 NIV. Now, some people, Daly goes on, object to translating Adelphoi with the phrase brothers and sisters because, in their view, it is an effort to be, quote-unquote, gender-inclusive and to give women equal roles and authority with men in religion. 
This is an unfair judgment. The New Testament itself teaches that God does not give a woman the right to have authority over a man. Mentions the woman silence verse in 1 Corinthians 14, and then the women should not teach or exercise authority over men in 1 Timothy 2.11. So this brother who's writing this word study on Adelphoi is not a feminist. But, he goes on to say, the phrase brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, is not designed to, to blur the distinctive roles that God has assigned to men and women, but it seeks to accurately convey the meaning of Adelphoi by indicating the familial relationship shared by those of the same faith. And, of course, that would include the sisters as well as the brothers. He continues, it is accurate to translate Adelphoi with the phrase brothers and sisters when a congregation is addressed, when the universal group of Jesus' followers is under discussion, and when it can be shown from the context that a religious group consisting of both males and females is under consideration. And the example I just gave you was 1 Corinthians 14, where Adelphoi is used over and over, and it obviously refers to women as well as men. And one last parting shot from Mr. Daly of Biblical Language Research, that blog, quote, it has long been proven by Greek lexicons that Adelphos, plural Adelphoi, are used in this manner for brothers and sisters in secular Greek literature and in the New Testament. Now, here's his quotes, quotations from lexicons, Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, pages 10 through 11, Alexander Souter's pocket lexicon, page 6, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. Introduction, pages 24 and pages, page 24 and pages 15 through 16, 1952 edition. Well, I've stacked a bunch of authorities there to let you feel comfortable with knowing that Paul is addressing the sisters when he's addressing the brothers. Now, Paul says, I want you all to agree. I want you all to have the same understanding. This does not mean that Paul expected them to agree on every doctrinal point. Of course not. We have to consider the context. The Corinthian church wasn't even close to obeying the fundamental basics of Christianity, and Paul's just trying to get them to have a basic unity, not agree on how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. He just wants them to agree on those things that made them Christian, not on all, you know, pre-chip rapture and all that other nonsense, all this stuff. You know, he, no, he wasn't talking about that. You're never going to get people to agree on that. I will never agree to a pre-chip rapture because I think it's preposterous. So that means I can't go to church with people who do agree with a pre-chip rapture, that I can't be in unity with them. I'm in, in unity with pre-chip rapturers on the basics of Christianity. I can quote the Nicene Creed with them. I have the same passion to see people come into the kingdom of God just like they do. So that is a non-essential thing of, of unity. Paul's not talking about that. Here's a quote from Adam Clark backing me up on this. Quote, On every essential doctrine of the gospel, all genuine Christians agree. Why then need religious communion be interrupted? This general agreement is all that the apostle can have in view, for it cannot be expected that any number of men should in every respect perfectly coincide in their views of all the minor points on which an exact conformity in sentiment is impossible to minds so variously constituted as those of the human race. Angels may thus agree, who see nothing through an imperfect or false medium, but to man this is impossible. Therefore, men should bear with each other, and not be so ready to imagine that none have the truth of God but they and their party. And that's the absolute truth. I mean, I, I, I'm, I like theology. I have a lot of agreements on theological points. But I'm not going to break fellowship with somebody because that passage in Second Peter says the earth's going to be burned up, the fiery elements are going to be burned up, and I believe that those elements from the Greek word stoichia refers to 
law and as in every other passage in the New Testament refers to law so that Paul there is talking about the burning up of the rabbinic legal legalistic system of the Jews and you think it refers to the burning up of the earth at the end of the world I'm not going to break fellowship over with you even though you're wrong you get my point all right famous scripture that should always be quoted here Amos 3 3 can two walk together without agreeing to meet now agreeing to meet does not mean the two agree that are walking together they agree on every conceivable point. They just agree to meet. <laughs> that fits well with Christians, right? We agree to meet with one another, to fellowship with one another. But we don't agree on every single possible intellectual, political, or doctrinal point. Now, we are to agree and not have any divisions and be united with the same understanding. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, we know that the word name refers to the whole character of the, of the person named, so this is a powerful appeal to unity because it's appealing to the character of Jesus. And folks, there ain't no quarreling or disunity in Jesus' nature. And we go to verse 11 in 1 Corinthians. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. Now this reported to him. We need to, to refer back to the, in a previous audio in the introductory material. I mentioned that Paul had previously written to the Corinthians. He's writing, by the way, on from Ephesus on the third journey, and he's written to them saying that in a letter that has been lost, which we, which is called, quote-unquote, the previous letter, and the Corinthians, in responding to that letter, they did it two ways. They wrote him a letter back, and they also orally reported back to Paul, at least members of Chloe's household did. So Paul, Paul has a return letter written to him, to a previous lost letter that he had sent to the Corinthians. He has a return letter written to him, and he also has an oral report by Chloe's household. Now, there is some discussion amongst the commentators about what was in the letter and what was in the oral report, the idea being that the letter didn't mention all the factions and rivalries, and that's why Paul says it was reported by members of Chloe's household. They didn't do that probably because it was embarrassing and they didn't want to write it down. Well, that could very well be. Some people say they also, the oral report didn't mention all the sexual immorality, but I have a problem with that because 1 Corinthians 7, 1, said, Paul says, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. He's discussing sexual immorality in that section of the letter in chapter 7. So, I don't know, they, they probably mentioned something about sexual immorality in the letter, in my opinion. But Jameson Fawcett Brown says that in that letter, they didn't say a syllable, a quote-unquote a syllable about the factions and fighting. Paul had to hear about that from Chloe's household. Now, the sexual immorality, I said he, he, they wrote about that, but he'd also heard report of it, too, in 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is widely reported, oral transmission. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So, through letter and through oral reports, Paul is writing is responding, and the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is a response to that Corinthian letter and oral report that had previously been sent to Paul. And those reports, written and oral by the Corinthians, were in response to Paul's previous letter that he had written to the Corinthians, which has become lost. I read an article on the Internet that said, if you want to understand the book of Corinthians, it's chronology, chronology, chronology. I think he's probably right. Now, this rivalry, the NIV translates it as quarrels. Rivalry, you know, there's really nothing wrong with rivalry. Rivalry is a mild word. It's ambiguous. It's neutral. It can be a good rivalry or it can be a bad rivalry. It can be a friendly rivalry in it, even. But that's not what Paul means here, obviously. And so the NIV translates it better, I think. They say quarrels. There are quarrels among you. 
And quarrels are the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Now, listen to all the bad stuff that comes from the flesh and how bad that is. And then we'll see that quarrels are listed amongst with all kinds of other horrible fleshly sins. Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and factions. Now, after all the basic immoral type sins and idolatry, come the personal relationship sins, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and factions. Those are works of the flesh, and Paul is not happy about it. Now, Jefferson, Fawcett, and Brown say that when Paul says, it has been reported to me that there's a hint of reproof there, he's hinting that, hey, when you wrote that letter to me, you might should have mentioned this, but you didn't. Now, he says the report to him about the dissensions and quarrels came from Chloe's household. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that Paul is being very smart here. If he had named his source, the individual that he got the information from, that would not have protected his source. To do that would have, quote-unquote, excited odium against the person or persons giving Paul the information. So he just says the household of Chloe, so nobody knows exactly who that is. Some people speculate, like Adam Clark, that the three prominent Corinthian brothers, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, were probably Chloe's sons, and those people were with Paul in Ephesus as he was writing 1 Corinthians. We see in 1 Corinthians 16:17, Paul says this, I am pleased to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present. And where was he when he was writing that? That was it. He was in Ephesus. So the, those three Corinthians were with Paul in Ephesus, and that's probably where he got the information from. Some people, John Gill, say that Chloe is actually a place name, so it was reported to Paul by members of the household that is in Chloe, in that place called Chloe. In other words, by members of a church meeting in, the, in a geographical place called Chloe, or by a family that lives in a geographical place called Chloe. I think that's quite a stretch. I think it's more reasonable to think that Chloe was the mother of those three prominent Corinthian brethren, Stephanus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, although that's just a speculation. It's not provable. We move on now to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 1. What I'm saying is this, Paul says, each of you, the Corinthians, each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Well, let's look at why the Corinthians might have identified themselves with a certain faction. Well, first of all, I'm with Paul. Why would they say they were with Paul? Well, Paul was the gentleman who started the church. He had been instrumental in their conversion. He had baptized some of them. So some of people say, yeah, I'm, 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 I like Paul. Some people said, well, I'm with Apollos. Now, why would they say that they followed Apollos? Well, Apollos had carried on a fruitful ministry at the Corinthian church. NIV Study Bible points this out, quoting Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, that's Alexandria in Egypt, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He's a Robbie Zacharias of his time. This man had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now, that's in Ephesus. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, that means over to Greece, Achaia is Greece, and of course Corinth is what he's talking about in particular. 
The brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. The brothers in Ephesus wrote to the disciples in Achaia and Corinth and said, Welcome Apollos to Corinth. After he arrived in Corinth, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we got an eloquent man. He likes to debate Jews in public, makes them look like idiots. He demonstrates that the that the, through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, he's fervent in spirit. Oh my goodness, I'm going to follow Apollos. Those verses in Acts 18, 24 through 28 said that Apollos was in Achaia, didn't specifically mention Corinth, but in Acts 19, 1 we read this, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. That's on the, at the beginning of his third journey. So we know that Paul, Apollos was in Corinth, and we also know he was much more polished than Paul was we will get later on we'll we'll quote the verses where peter's complaining about or or excuse me paul is mentioning the fact that his critics are talking about how uh uncomely his speech was and we know that apollos was very polished here's a quote from john gill paul whom they despised as a man whose aspect was mean his bodily presence weak made no figure in the pulpit his speech low and contemptible his discourse is plain not having that flow of words and accuracy of expression as Apollos had, who was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. So some people say, well, I won't follow Apollos because he's a better speaker than Paul is. Well, some people chose to follow Cephas. Now, why would they follow Cephas? Well, maybe the Jewish Christians in Corinth might have wanted to follow Peter because Peter was Jewish. Then I've studied Bible. John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all say that, and I think that's probably reasonable. After all, Peter was around with Christ from the very beginning. He was one of the original 12 apostles, but Paul and Apollos were not. Good reason to follow Cephas. Ah, but there's another faction. The fourth faction, I'm with Christ, some of the Corinthians said. Well, why would somebody say they're following Christ? Well, we'd have to be a little bit more speculative here. I suspect that they were super spiritual. They said they thought, well, we don't need to be bothered with mundane things like leaders. John Gill says that. So I think Gill is right here. This is what they're saying. It's just Jesus. We don't follow men. We just follow Jesus. We don't need to have leaders in the church. We just follow Jesus. I've met enough people like that. That's that's why I would be surprised if that same kind of people like that in Corinth. Adam Clark has an interesting speculation. He says, well, maybe this faction is not one that's being criticized by Paul. Maybe this is the correct faction. People who say, I don't follow any human leader. I just follow Christ. Now, there's some that's sort of reasonable to me. We notice that Paul didn't explicitly condemn this faction, not in this passage. However, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7, Paul says this, Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. So in other words, Paul sounds like he's referring to the so-called Christ faction. He says, hey, you, you, you think you're, you, you belong to Christ only, and you're such a big shot. Well, guess what, boys? I belong to Christ, too. So it doesn't sound like he's very happy with his Christ party. So I think that John Gill is right, that this is a super spiritual party who's saying, we don't follow any human beings, we just follow Jesus. We go now to verse 13, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul continues, Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? In other words, was Christ divided into faction like factions like Apollos and Paul and Cephas? No, of course not. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, in the same letter, 11 chapters later, Paul says this, For as the body is one, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. 
So Christ is one and his body is one. You don't divide them. They're one with each other. And also Christ himself is not divided up into parts. Were you baptized in Paul's name? And to baptize somebody in Paul's name implies that you're going to become an intimate disciple of that person, an intimate follower. That's what baptism in Christ, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's what that implies, becoming a disciple of Jesus, not just going through some empty religious ritual. So Paul's saying, none of you were baptized in my name to follow me, were you? So why are you calling yourself I'm of Paul's party? You think I'm trying to set up a new religion or something? That's nonsense. We go to verses 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul continues, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none one, no one can say you were baptized in my name. Now, Gaius is the, is the brother mentioned in Romans 16, verse 23, in whose house Paul was meeting for church. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later. Crispus was the synagogue leader on the second journey when Paul started the church. And there was a big riot. He was there for 18 months on that second journey. And at the end of those 18 months, there was a big riot, if you recall, in Acts, Acts chapter 18, somewhere in there. And Crispus got saved. And so Paul, he was the first leader of the synagogue. Sosthenes was the next leader of the synagogue. He probably got saved too. But, but here, Crispus is saved and Paul baptized. It makes sense. You, a lot of times you, save, you lead somebody to the Lord, you baptize that person if possible. And... Gaius, as I said, the guy that whose house Paul was meeting in for church, Romans 16:23 says that, and Paul baptized those two guys. Other than that, he says no one can say you were baptized in my name. Now later on in the next verse, he's going to say, wait a minute, I forgot somebody, you know. But right now, as he writes his verse, he's he's only thinking of Christmas and Gaius. Now Paul says, I thank God that I didn't baptize anybody. Now, why was he happy? He wasn't happy per se that he didn't baptize a lot of people. He was just happy that, as it turns out, it helped cut against the argument that he was trying to form a Paul faction. Now, some people say he may have purposely refrained from baptizing so as to avoid people making a faction around him. I don't think so. I don't think the thought would cross Paul's mind that they would be dumb enough to start starting a Paul faction in a church just because he was baptizing people. I think the real reason he wasn't baptizing a lot of people is because he was busy. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus didn't baptize people. He delegated that task out to his disciples because Jesus was busy teaching. How about Peter in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10? The Holy Spirit fell on that household, which included soldiers, which included slaves, which included friends, which it was a big, big enough group to where he couldn't baptize them all. So he said, hey, get them baptized. He didn't do it. And I suspect that Paul was probably too busy to baptize people. To baptize people. So, this was just a happy outcome of his choice, in my opinion, of his choice to let somebody else baptize him so that he can now say with confidence, hey, I'm not starting a faction in my name. I mentioned uh, Crispus, one of the ones that Paul did baptize. I didn't give you the site. I'll read it now. Acts 18.8. Crispus, this is on the second journey after Paul started the church in Corinth, Paul and his team, and they, and, and they were there for 18 months. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. Now let's go back to Mr. Gaius here. Now I'm getting ready to go into a, a, a point of theology, I don't know if you call it theology or doctrine, that's so fine that no commentators talk about this, but it just happens that in conversations with my friends, I've come up with interesting problem here. Who is this Gaius? Well, 
John Gill says he was a very liberal and hospitable man, and John Gill refers to Romans 16, verse 23. Remember, Paul is in Corinth at the end of the third journey as he's writing back to the Romans as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. So he's in Corinth, and he refers to Gaius. So this is the same Gaius that Paul baptized that is mentioned in the Corinthian letter written from Ephesus. This is in the Roman letter written from Corinth. And Paul says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. The whole church? Gaius is hosting the whole church? Well, he's host to Paul by putting him up, so Paul's probably living there, but it sounds like the whole church is living in Gaius's house. Oh, well, maybe it doesn't mean that. Maybe it just means the whole church is meeting for the Lord's Day meetings in Gaius's house. Well, now you got a problem. How does the whole church at Corinth meet in one person's house? Well, some people say to get around this, he must have been a very wealthy man, just like Gill says. He was a very liberal and hospitable man, which means he's, to be liberal, he had to be wealthy. To, to, so in order to have the whole Corinthian church in his house, his house must have been a big one. Well, I have a friend, my friend Steve Ackerson, who's done a lot of research into the size of Romans' houses and says that the Romans' houses could be large, the wealthy Romans' houses, large, could hold about 70 people, I think he said, and I, I don't doubt that. So let's just assume that he was wealthy and he had a big house, 70 people. All right, the next problem that occurs, I had another friend who asked me one time, how does all those spiritual gifts in first in First Corinthians 12, chapter 12 and chapter 14, how did they all operate if the whole church was in one house? There's not enough people to have words of wisdom, words of revelation, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, healing, teaching, encouragement, helps, and all those other, all those other gifts. Well, when I first heard that, I thought, well, yeah, but maybe Paul's not talking, not meaning that all the gifts were operating on every Lord's Day. That one Sunday, one gift would operate, the next Sunday, another gift would operate. And I think that probably solves that problem. And if the house was very large, as my other friend, Steve Ackerson, said, well, then that makes it even easier. That means if you get 70 people in there, then that makes it easier to operate all those gifts. And so I can solve the problem, I think, of how can all the gifts operate meeting in one house. But here's another problem I cannot solve. We know the church was started somewhere between 49 and 51 A.D. That's according to the ESV study Bible. Those dates are not controversial. We know that Paul wrote Romans 16:23 around 57 A.D., 58, 57 A.D. That those dates are also not controversial. So Paul is in Gaius's house. The church has been in existence for a mere seven years or so. And the whole church is meeting in his house after seven years of evangelism with Apollos there refuting the Jews in public? Seven years of evangelism and all you can do is fit the pitiful, tiny little church into Gaius' house? You got Paul the Apostle there working with him for 18 months? You got Apollos working there refuting the Jews in the synagogues? And that's all you can do is get enough people to fill up only one house. I frankly find that incredible. Does it not make sense that if Paul is living in Gaius's house, being hosted by Gaius personally, that Paul would also go to church there when the church met in Gaius's house? And so that's what he's referring to when he says Gaius is my personal host as well as the whole ch host to the whole church that meets in Gaius's house. So here's my suggest suge suggested solution to the problem of Romans 16:23. When Paul says Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. He means the whole church that was meeting in Gaius' house, not the whole church in Corinth, but the whole church in Gaius' house where he was staying. 
because Gaius was host to Paul, putting Paul up as he traveled. And he hosted to the whole church they met in his house. And I believe that there were many other house churches all around Corinth, such as Phoebe's church at Syncria, which is Corinth's port city. I think that solves that problem. Namely, the problem of how can the whole church fit into Gaius's house. The subsidiary problem is how can there be enough people in Gaius's house to exercise all the spiritual gifts? Two problems, really, solved, in my humble opinion. 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul continues, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. Now, a household includes family members, servants, anyone else living in the house. So Paul baptized not only Stephanus, but his whole household. So he had baptized a few people there at Corinth. Now, of course, Paul is not saying earlier when he says only baptize a few people, he's not saying that he didn't have the authority to do that. Of course he did. He's just saying, I just didn't do it because I didn't have time. Now, who is this Stephanus? 1 Corinthians 16:15. Paul mentions him in his sign-off, his closing. Brothers, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. So when Paul got to Corinth, that was one of the first people he saved. And not only was that the first pe- people he saved, Stephanus and his household, but they were the first people in Greece, in Achaia, the Roman province of Achaia, which is Greece. So they kind of had the first place, as far as chronology is concerned, of people getting saved. And it would be natural that he would baptize them because his church is not very large then. And we drop two verses down to 1 Corinthians 16:17. I am pleased to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence. So the Corinthians were absent in Corinth, and Paul was in Ephesus writing, to, writing the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so in Ephesus, not in Corinth, but in Ephesus were three Corinthians, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. So apparently there was communication back between Corinth and Ephesus, and Paul was still on good working terms with, the, uh, with some of the early Corinthian converts especially Stephanus, mentioned here. Now, Paul, when he says, I did, in fact, what he's doing is correcting himself when he said in the previous verse that he hadn't baptized anybody besides Christmas and Gaius. And naturally, they are liberals, skeptics, liberal Protestants who say, see there, the scriptures aren't inspired. Well, this is what Adam Clark says about that quote. What does the inspiration of prophet or apostle necessarily imply? That he must understand the geography of the universe and have an intuitive knowledge of all the inhabitants of the earth and how often and when they may have changed their residence? (laughs) What he's saying is, hey, I don't know if I baptized anyone else because some of you people in Corinth, I might have baptized them somewhere else in another city and they might have moved to Corinth and I don't know who it is that's moved into Corinth. Well, that takes care of some of it, but then Clark continues, nor was that inspiration ever given so as to work on a man's memory that he could not forget any of the acts which he had performed during life. In other words, just because Paul slipped his memory, that doesn't mean what he wrote was not inspired. His memory wasn't inspired. His actions weren't inspired. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't a new Jesus that never made a mistake. It was the scripture that was inspired, not his memory. I mean, come on. People that that quibble over things like this, it's not because they're looking for objective truth. It's because they hate Jesus and they hate the Bible. Oh, they'll give lip service to how they love Jesus. No, they don't. You love Jesus, you love his word too. Or if they don't hate Jesus, they're at least doubting Jesus. Let me soften it a little bit by saying that. We move now to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, and we'll finish up this audio about the divisions in the Corinthian church. Paul continues, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. So here we end the 
section on unity, and this will serve as an introduction to our next audio, the next section of 1 Corinthians 1, which talks about preaching Christ using philosophy and all that kind of stuff, and the wisdom of man as opposed to the wisdom of God. So, Christ did not send me to baptize Paul's following in the steps of some good role models. For example, Jesus, John 4, 2, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Peter and Cornelius' house, and he, Peter, commanded them, the converts in Cornelius' house, in Acts 10, verse 48, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the whole house, they all began to speak in tongues to glorify God. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He commanded them, but he didn't do it. So here's what Paul was not doing when he said Christ did not send me to baptize. He's not de-emphasizing the importance of baptism. He's just saying that that was not what he was chiefly called to do. On the contrary, John Gill points that out, and, and J- Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, On the contrary, Paul exalts baptism highly, Romans 6.3. Paul says this, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Yeah, it's important. He's also, the second thing he's not doing, he's saying that he had no right to do it because he had no commission from Jesus, as Adam Clark points out. He's just admitted without apology that he had baptized some Corinthians, including Stephanus' household. So obviously he's not saying that Jesus didn't give me the ability to to baptize. I I can't believe anybody would say that about him. And I think this is obvious. No problem here. Now Paul says he doesn't evangelize. He wants to evangelize, but not with clever words. He's not interested in Greek rhetoric. The Greeks made an art form out of rhetoric. The solips, the uh, sophists went around teaching rhetoric all the time. The rhetors, they would win lawsuits in the assembly. So they had to study rhetoric to do that. They uh, were skillful in demagoguery to excite the passions of the ecclesia meeting in the Penix in the in Athens to win a law case or to win a political argument. They would use clever words. The sophists would teach people to use clever words to prove their arguments were right, even though they were false. They would teach, say, they would say, all right, here's Proposition A and Proposition B. They're totally opposed to one another. I'm going to teach you, my student, the sophists would say, I'm going to teach you to prove that A is true, and then I'm going to teach you to prove that B is true. And we don't give a rip about the law of non-contradiction because we're not interested in that. We're only concerned about winning. Sounds a lot, about, a lot like political discourse today in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Paul, when he says he's not coming here to evangelize with clever words, He's anticipating his defense against critics of his speaking style. Remember the Corinthians are Greeks. They love rhetoric. They love fancy words. They love philosophy and rhetoric. And Paul's speaking style, unfortunately for him, was not good. We know this by looking at 2 Corinthians 10.1. Now I, Paul, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. Humble? Mm, Could be because of the way he spoke. Later on in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For it is said his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical physical presence is weak, and his public speaking is despicable. And that means that that was Paul's reputation. It's probably true. And then, isn't that interesting? The man who's had more influence beside Jesus, of course, probably more than anybody in the world, was a terrible public speaker. But his letters were weighty and powerful, and that's how he made his influence. Now, it's interesting. That reminds me of a political writer that I, 20 or 30 years ago, came across, R. Emmett Tyrell. And this guy, I, have, I didn't read too much by him, but I read one article. I'll never forget because it was so funny. He was, I forgot what he was talking about, but he made an allusion to Adolf Hitler, comma, the late German reformer. 
and the incredible understatement as he was just passing by and just lightly flicked flicked that out, you know, just lightly touched on it. It was powerful. It was funny. The late German reformer. Yeah, he killed six million people. The late German re- reformer. So I thought this guy, and, and that was just one example. He he was an excellent writer. So he was going to be on TV one time debating something with a panel of people, and I said, "Hot dog, I'm gonna watch this guy." And I watched him. He was awful. Hey, he couldn't string two words together. He was so bad. And that was the last time I think he ever appeared on TV. I never saw him again. There's just some people like that. Paul was one of those guys. He could write, but he couldn't speak. Now, Paul says, you know, if you preach the gospel with clever words, what's going to happen? The cross of Christ will be emptied of its effect. Of its effect, of course, is forgiveness for sin. The blood on the cross is the means of our justification, covering of our sins, washing us clean, and so forth. And people would be so caught up in the rhetoric and the oratory that they would miss the message that Jesus has forgiven you for your sins, the centrality of the gospel. Paul's not interested in that. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you then. 